everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us today on this snowy day, at least snowing up here in northeast Pennsylvania. If you're joining the program through our, I just realized my lighting is off again. Let's see if we can get that better. If you're joining us through the um, Zoom app, we would like you to join the program by texting in your comments or questions about what we're talking about today or about anything you really want to ask. Um, if you're coming in and watching us through the uh, Bible Quest YouTube channel, be sure to put in your comments there and we'll be monitoring those comments and we'll add that to the program as well today. Um, Jeff, good to see you today. How are you doing on this snowy day? Great. Good afternoon. It's not so much snowy here as kind of slushy at this point. Yes, that time of the I mean, We still have snow on the ground, but... Yeah, it's messy, messy. Stephen, yeah. coming in from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You getting that kind of weather out there, Stephen? Yeah, same here. We have some leftover snow on the ground outside, but it's mostly slush at this point, so nasty out there. Yeah. Well, what, up here in northeast, the northeast part of it, nothing's gone to slush yet, still just snow. Uh, Jonathan, our webcast engineer, is going to be here in the back end monitoring all, all the platform programs and putting in your comments and things. Glad that Jonathan's here. And uh, Scott, our program director, um, is with us. Hi, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing fine, Drew. Drew and I'm looking at snow hanging from my front porch by about a foot, foot and a half. So it's, it's snowed and then it iced and now it's melting and just hanging down. And at some point will come crashing down in an avalanche, but otherwise doing well. <laughs> okay. Thanks for that description. Well, uh, let me see here. Um, did I stop? Okay. We stopped the sharing screen. Good, good. I meant to do that before. Thank you, Jonathan. So let's start with a question that came in, actually came in very early this morning to the program. And it's, uh, the question is, I live alone and I go to church on Sunday. In fact, this Sunday past, I just got baptized. My living alone, does this void or make my prayer requests less? And I think we meant like less valuable or less appropriate. Um, Scott, why don't you go ahead and uh, take, take that away? Uh, well, what I'd like to do is ask the audience today to be thinking about what the Bible says about loneliness and being alone? What are some of the challenges of it? What can be some potential benefits from it? What are some things to keep in mind? Um, it's, it's a common condition that uh, so many people will at some point and often at many points in their life space. Uh, so be thinking about some biblical principles and texts along this line. We'll be talking about that and how that uh, affects is the question says it, uh, our relationship to God, or does it? And uh, we'll, we'll go into several things on that in a few minutes. First, however, and so during these next few minutes, if you have some thoughts, comments, questions, Bible observations about loneliness, uh, send that in. Drew can tell you how to do that. But while we're waiting on that, we're going to ask Stephen about his recent trip to Israel with his father and brother. Yeah, we uh, just got back on Saturday uh, from Israel, and it was a fantastic trip. We just did a self-guided tour for about seven days, and it was my first time going, uh, so that was that was a lot of fun. I'm going to share a screen here 
uh, with some pictures, if I can get that up. While you're bringing that up, Stephen, one of the things I'd be interested in, if there was anything that you saw while there that just kind of brought to life what you had read in the Bible, that kind of uh, helped you picture an event in the Bible more clearly or or better explain the meaning of something for you. Yeah, I'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, for me, I think the Garden of Gethsemane was one of those moments for me. Uh, but just a kind of quick overview, this is a picture of us outside of Jerusalem. You can see the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount there behind us. Uh, we also visited down south near the Dead Sea. Uh, this is near Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Um, I'm not actually in a cave in this picture. You are uh, or are not. I am not. It's a little depression in the rock. I hoped it was a cave and crawled up there, but uh, it wasn't very deep. So, What is a cave but a depression in a rock? That's true. Uh, so it was a very shallow cave, okay. like maybe 10 feet well, deep. Like you're so, saying it was Iraq. I thought you were in Israel. Uh, 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 <laughs> okay. So we also Sorry. went to Masada. I ran away from that one. So we also went down to Masada, which is not a biblical site, but it was the last stronghold of the Jewish rebellion uh, after AD 70. And it's that rock you see here in the background. Uh, this is the visitor center. That was spectacular. Uh, we also, uh, this is a view from the top of Masada. You can see the basin of the Dead Sea. This is kind of the northern part of the Dead Sea. And then that southern part that sticks out at the bottom. Um, it's dried up to where there's a land bridge there now. Uh, we also spent uh, two days in Galilee. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee, kind of the western and northern end of uh, the sea. And that was, I really enjoyed that area. There's a lot less uh, modern stuff built up around there. And so you saw the land a little more like Jesus would have seen it. So we look at kind of place. mostly south and southeast in that one of the most, are we looking mostly kind of south, southeast or mostly south? So uh, the other way, actually, this where I'm, can you see my mouse on yeah. the screen? Yes. Uh, this, is the, this is the north end of the sea here. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so this is the western side. Uh, over here would be the eastern side, what would have used to have been the Gentile side of the sea. Um, oh, okay. so you got a point on, to say Capernaum and Bethsaida, roughly there for us? Capernaum would have been roughly in this area, uh, Beth, Bethsaida over in here. Uh, somewhere along this northern shoreline. Uh, we're, I'm standing on Mount Arbel in this picture, looking down, uh, and Magdala would have been down in this area where Mary Magdalene was from. Um, Migdal, a larger modern city, is a little just off this picture to the left. Um, so that gives you an idea. Nazareth would be almost directly behind me by about 45 minutes. Um, so we went there, and uh, on our way out, we stopped at Capernaum, which was just also spectacular, uh, seeing the Roman ruins there at Capernaum. Um, so there are several cool sites. Where's the water from? Is that from a rainfall that just occurred? Yes, there had been some rain, and so that's what the water's from. Although the sea, the Mediterranean Sea is just out there. I don't know if you can see it. The there. Mediterranean? Yeah, so Capernaum is, uh, excuse me, Caesarea. I meant to say, oh. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> two C's, two C's, towns. Sorry about that. So yeah, this is Caesarea on the Mediterranean, not uh, Capernaum on the north shore of Galilee. I've always heard, you know, that the area over there is a lot more compact than we usually think. 
But if, it, <laughs> if we were from Capernaum, see, <laughs> that that would be something special. Yes. Uh, so there were a lot of sites that made an impact on me down there. Uh, w- one of them was this uh, in Jerusalem. There's a store uh, that uh, has uh, an Alabama Crimson Tide theme to it, and that, that just meant a lot to me coming from Alabama. Uh, but actually, there there are a lot of touristy shops down there. Uh, this is one of my favorites, being an Alabama fan. But uh, I want to move to this. This was uh, at the Davidson Center in Jerusalem. What you're seeing here is the remains of a first century road uh, with a lot of rubble on it that they left intact once they excavated it. To your right, you see the western wall of the Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. Actually, if you could go straight through the wall ahead of us, you would see the the Wailing Wall uh, where Jews gather uh, regularly to worship uh, and to mourn the loss of the temple. That's just on the other side of this wall here. But what they've done here is they've excavated this first century road um, that would have been uh, from the time of Jesus. And some of these stones that you see, especially toward the back here, these large stones, uh, this is my brother standing up next to one of these. These are enormous rocks. And uh, these were thrown down from the Temple Mount in the first century. And they've just, as they excavated them, they left them there. And so it's amazing to think about this. It's a long way down. Uh, This is a view so you can kind of see the top of the temple mount there that um of course jesus prophesied about this he said he said about the temple do you see these buildings there will not be left here one stone standing upon another that will not be thrown down scott uh let's clarify for people is people looking that and they're hearing jesus said not one stone would be left upon another oh i don't know if you heard that or not but that was the huge avalanche out front um (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Speaking of falling down. But in the picture, of course, you see a lot of stones that are stacked one upon another. And then you see these down there. So could you clarify what it's talking about, the the difference, say, between the temple and the temple mount area? Yeah. So let me back up to a picture of Jerusalem. Um, So what you see here, you can see most of the temple mount uh, in this picture. The temple mount is this large structure underneath the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock stands where the temple used to be. But basically everything on top of this platform was leveled in AD 70 by the Romans who came in and burned Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and the buildings surrounding the temple. Um, And since then, there's been a lot of changes. Now there's these gardens, these trees are up there. And of course, the Dome of the Rock, this uh, Islamic mosque uh, that stands where the temple used to be. But the Temple Mount itself uh, continues to stand from the the days of Herod uh, in the first century. And there have been some modifications to it, but this is the same basic structure that's been there. So when Jesus talks about not one stone being left on another, that was very true of everything on top of the Temple Mount, of course, of the temple itself. particularly the temple itself, yes. So the wall that we're seeing there is Herodian? I believe so. That, that uh, I'll have to double-check my sources on that, but uh, this Temple Mount is what Herod the Great had built and expanded on uh, the, the yeah. temple itself. When the Jews mentioned in the first century, it took 46 years to build this temple. Would you destroy it in three days? 
um, they're talking about the broader temple complex, the temple mount, and all the additions, Solomon's porch, and all that that Herod um, had been working on, not just the temple itself that we, as we think of it. If I remember correctly, that whole area, that big platform area, I think is about like 16 football fields. It's huge. And yeah, on top amazing. of it would have been where there would have been an area where, for example, the Sanhedrin met. There would be area where Gentiles could be, Roman soldiers and Gentiles and stuff. And then as you get closer to the temple, which would have been uh, more near the Dome of the Rock there, there would have been that low wall that a Gentile couldn't go past going into. And then in the temple itself, you would have the temple. Yeah, so I, I think that's helpful for people to understand the Wailing Wall and the Western Wall is not part of the actual temple, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and such. It's this large platform underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting is in the New Testament, sometimes they'll say the temple and not be talking about what we think of, the holy place, the most yes. holy place, where only the priest could go. They're talking about the whole temple complex, right. but they'll just say the temple. And right. you have to use context to figure out what they're talking about. Exactly. Um, this is this is a picture to illustrate a little. Uh-oh, Stephen, you hit your mute button. Uh, I, I didn't hit mute, but. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. But now we hear you. So you were about to right, describe can you this picture. Okay? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, so this is a first century model. Uh, or it's a model of first century Jerusalem. And so you can see where the temple would have stood. And again, here's that temple mount underneath. Everything up above here was destroyed. Uh, but we still have this lower part. And let me show you this. This is another view from the Davidson Center. Um, uh this is the southern wall of the Temple Mount. Here's kind of the top of it here. And if you see here, there's the top of an arch that is remaining. And this would have been from the first century as well. It would have been this area right here. Um, these gates at the southern end of the Temple Complex would have been where people entered Holy. and exited the Temple Mount. And so Jesus himself would have, at some point, walked on these steps as he went to and from the temple in, uh, in the first century. So it's, it's cool to think about Jesus having walked uh, in this area. Now, these steps have been covered over since the first century, but these are still, this is right where those steps uh, were in the, in the first century. Um, a couple of other places that made an impact on me were to see, for me, the places that are the most authentic. Uh, these are first century ruins of a synagogue at Magdala. Uh, again, right there off the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is not recorded as having specifically taught at Magdala, but it talks about him going throughout the towns of Galilee, which would have almost certainly included Magdala. This may have been where he met Mary Magdalene, or perhaps cast seven demons out of her. We don't know where that was. But you can see here um, the typical format of a first century synagogue, where the speaker would be in the middle near where this box is, and uh, the listeners would be seated on steps around uh, the center of the synagogue. And so it's very likely that Jesus taught in this synagogue. This is a picture from Capernaum, not Caesarea, uh, where there's a fourth century synagogue that's built directly on top of a first century synagogue. And we know from scripture that Jesus taught in the synagogue at Capernaum. So the black stone that you see underneath is that same foundation of the 
synagogue that Jesus taught in. And uh, they later built this fourth century synagogue on top of it, uh, which I kind of wish they'd left the first one. But uh, it's cool to see that this is a place that Jesus stood. He would have taught um, in this very spot. Uh, and this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, I'll wrap up with this one. If y'all have any questions, uh, we can talk about those. Um, the traditional spot where Jesus prayed is in the Church of All Nations. Just behind this, you can see the top of the building right here. But to see the place where Jesus would have been, we don't know exactly where he prayed, but this would have been a place that he and his disciples came frequently. And where Jesus, of course, on the night before his death, uh, was praying fervently with tears to the Father. And it's just moving to think about uh, this place as Jesus came there in the evening after the Passover and uh, was pleading with the Father. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So that was one of the more thought-provoking places to to visit on on my trip. Do you have any thoughts, comments, questions on on that? No, I'd just like to go someday. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that with us. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. It, it is. I do think about the Garden of Gethsemane and when Judas is going to. Um, identify Jesus with a kiss. Of course, Jesus has been teaching in the temple every day for a week and not to mention all the teaching publicly he's done for the last three years. And you wonder why did they need somebody to identify Jesus for them? But it's at night and it's in yes. the shadows of these olive trees and mm -hmm. he's perhaps wearing, you know, uh, a hood. And, and so you would need somebody who knew him intimately, who could recognize him in the dark uh, to point him out to the others. Mm -hmm. Very good. So, I'll right. put my screen share there. And uh, of course, while he's there, and this will make a segue into our question. The night before he got out to Gethsemane, at the end of John chapter sixteen, Jesus said, "The disciples said, we believe in you.'" He said, "You believe?" He said, "You're all going to leave. You're all going to leave me alone." And yet. I am not alone. The Father is with me. So let's turn our attention to, to the question uh, that was asked. Does being alone, does that hinder our prayers and such? And we'll, we've got some good comments that have come in. We'll be reading in just a moment. But let's begin with just answering the question. Uh, here's a person and they are alone. Does that hinder their prayers to God? And maybe we'll begin with just this. Do you ever recall uh, a prophet who felt alone? And somebody tell us about that. Well, I, I know where you're going, but I'd like to just take the, that first one question head on. Does it hinder our prayers to be alone? If so, Paul the Apostle, his prayers were hindered. I don't think we'd come to that conclusion. Right. So, but Elijah felt alone. Yeah. And, and Noah, I mean... <laughs> out of the whole earth it's just noah and his family and yet instead of that hindering his prayer he found grace with god uh and it's, it's a little bit like sometimes you know everybody's mother said if everybody jumped off the bridge would you mm -hmm. uh, and if you go the way of the majority that's going to hinder your prayers uh but if you're with god that's where you need to be that's right and I think about Elijah there in 1 Kings 19, where he feels alone. 
and he's just, what's interesting about First Kings 19 is it's right after the showdown with the prophets of Baal in which the Lord has just sent fire from heaven and consumed the sacrifice and the stones of the altar and the water around the altar and shown by this incredible miracle that he is God and that Baal is not God. And it's right after that, that Elijah feels so alone and depressed. Now Jezebel has just told him that you're a dead man by this time tomorrow. Uh, And so he's got reason to be afraid, but he runs out and he flees out to Horeb or Mount Sinai, the, the mountain of God. And there the Lord meets him. And there's the earthquake, the wind, the fire. The Lord is not in those things. And then there's a a, a gentle breeze, some translations put. And the Lord is there with Elijah. And he hears his cry. And he answers him and tells him that he's not as alone as he thinks he is. Um, But there in verse um, 1 Kings 19, uh, Elijah says a couple of different times, They've killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And uh, in verse 18, the Lord says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. One important thing to remember is that many times when we feel alone, we are not as alone as we think we are. In Elijah's case, he... There was ever, he thought he was the last one who feared the Lord and had not bowed to Baal, but the Lord said that there's at least 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal. And so God comforts him with that. I just remembered um, the case, the other event. Uh, look up Second Corinthians, I mean, Second Kings 6, I think, Elisha. And you remember the, the foreign army comes and, and they're all around and his servant is all concerned. And uh, Elisha... Uh, tells his servants look up and he's about to see something and what does he see and what's the famous statement made there so if you're looking just with a natural eye here's the prophet here's you the servant and there's all these uh, uh, yeah, open his eyes that that he may see that those that are, are with us are more than those that are against us yeah mm-hmm. yeah so one person with God is a majority is maybe another way to look at it. The, the and that's so important. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Drew. The question is dealing, I think that you can really look at it from two points of view. Uh, being alone, does that hinder our, our relationship with God? And obviously you're pointing out, no, it doesn't. But the other thing is the feeling or the sense of feeling alone, being alone. You can have a sense of loneliness whether you're with someone or not, right? I mean, and so there's another aspect of it, and I'm not sure if the question from the from the viewer was looking at it from that point of view, but loneliness is a very lonely thing to experience. You know, and you, know you think about that, you can feel alone even in, if you're in a crowd. And yes. sometimes that comes from being misunderstood. Sometimes it comes from being the only person who knows about something. And I wonder how many times Jesus must have felt that way. <laughs> in coming to this earth, and even in the midst of lots of people, he's the only one who knows what's really going to happen, and having to face uh, his death, his crucifixion, and he tells them multiple times, I'm going to be uh, I'm gonna be killed, and on the third day I'm going to rise again, <laughs> and they don't understand. 
um, I'm sure our Lord at times dealt with loneliness here. And Jesus, so. speaking of Jesus, how alone did he feel on that cross? Yeah, yeah. Let's take a look at some of the comments that have come in here. Uh, in some ways, a person living alone has more flexible time and opportunities to serve God and his or her brothers and sisters and others, 1 Corinthians 7, 34. And recall, this is where in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is discussing marriage and celibacy. He says, you don't need to be celibate. Uh, let each man have its own wife and each wife her own husband. But he pointed out he didn't choose to be married, and he preferred that, and he mentioned the advantage of it. His interest wasn't divided, so he had more time to give uh, undivided attention to things of the Lord and the kingdom. Uh, a single person, uh, Lori writes, may be more open to developing relationships and becoming part of the spiritual family because their need for close relationships motivates him to spend time with and get to know others. That drive benefits both them and the others they reach toward. Mark 1030 uh, for above comment. And this is where somebody read that passage. He says, everyone that is left, father, mother, brother, sister, etc. Uh, does anybody have that, Mark 1030? Yeah, yeah, I've got it here. Go ahead, Go ahead Drew. Uh, truly, I, in verse 29, says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come, eternal life. Very good. Uh, I think about the fulfillment of that, that uh, even people who don't have a physical family or who may be alone in their family as a Christian, there are so many people who are the only Christian in their family. Uh, they gain a family in the church. They gain a family in God's people. And what a blessing that is that Jesus talks about here. Um, one of the, the down payments of heaven, so to speak, before we're together with God's people in eternity, being together with his people here is one of the great uh, things that lets us know we're not alone. Let me, let me read a passage here from Acts 9. This is about Tabitha, all of Dorcas. Uh, the word means gazelle, actually. This is in Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 36, and this ties into part of Lori's comment there, perhaps. There was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydia was near, since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Peter rose, went in with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood by him, by him weeping, showing tunics with other garments of Dorcas, while she was made while she was with them. Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And what I'd like to just note here, uh, along with this, Luke doesn't mention anything about her family. When Jesus goes and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, you, you read about Jairus the widow of Nain's son. You read about his mother is there. There's no reference here 
to um, any family of Tabitha doesn't mean that no relative was there, but that doesn't seem to be the crux of it. So it sounds like she's probably uh, either a widow or not married herself, likely. But look what she's done. What, what has she done with her life? She's devoted it to good works. Yeah. And you can see the things that she made for these widows and the good that she was doing. Whatever her family situation was, she made the most of the time she had. And if uh, my supposition is correct, that she herself was a widow or unmarried, it go, it, might that help illustrate uh, perhaps how she might have a special affinity? Everybody should care for widows and such. But, you know, if she herself is that, she, you know, might be in a really good position to be, you know, have these other widows on her mind. And, but what is she doing with that? Um, she's, she's using it to help other people. Uh, so we're all going to feel lonely sometimes. Uh, we're going to have terrible, a married couple, uh, when, when one dies, uh, I, I never tell people when that happens, oh, I understand what you're, what you're going through. Cause I don't, it hasn't happened to me yet. You know, if, if you're married someday, you will learn or your spouse will learn. But if you haven't gone through that, we don't know how lonely that is and how difficult that is. But in times uh, of life, when we are alone, it makes a difference whether or not we stay focused on ourselves, or if we connect with other people and help other people. I go back and I think about when God created Adam and an interesting question, well, why not just create Adam and Eve at the same time? Hmm. <laughs> but it's interesting that God created Adam first. And then in Genesis 2, he brings all the animals to Adam and sees what he's going to name them. And then there's not a helper suitable found for Adam. And then he creates woman. Uh, and of course, the first not good statement in Genesis is it is not good for man to be alone. For man to be alone. And of course, that's true of marriage, but that's also true in just in general. God created us for companionship. He created us to connect with other human beings because God was with Adam there in the garden. Um, but there was a part of Adam that was unfulfilled until there were other human beings for him to be with. And that's significant as we think about struggling with loneliness is that that is something that is natural for us to feel. God created us for companionship. And when we feel lonely, we realize it's not good for men to be alone. And that's a natural thing to want to be around other people. And of course, there's different levels of loneliness. Um, Drew put here in a comment that being single is different than being alone. I don't know, Drew, if you had anything to expound on with that. Well, yeah, when I, I remember being single, I felt alone at times, but in another occasion, after being married for so long and then losing my wife, then I really felt lonely. Major difference between the two. I'm not saying one's worse or better than the other, but yes, I think that's where I'd like you to go is dealing. How do we deal with loneliness? Not being alone, but how do we deal with loneliness? Where can we get encouragement from others, obviously, as you mentioned, but from scriptures as well? Where can we get encouragement to overcome this sense of loneliness? 
Well, I, I, uh, Scott alluded to a passage a little bit ago that's one of my favorites on it in John 16, uh, just before Jesus offers that beautiful prayer at the end of this long dialogue with his disciples in John 16 and verse uh, 32. John 16, 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And to stop right there for a second, Jesus is about to face something completely by himself. The disciples are all going to flee, every last one of them, and he will be alone with his enemies. He will not have one friend to stand by him, not another human to comfort him and to stand by him as he goes through the greatest trial of his life. And yet the end of that verse is so powerful. It says, Jesus said, yet I am not alone for the father is with me. And that's just so important is there's going to be times for all of us where to one degree or another, we're alone when it comes to other humans. But to remember that the Lord is always with us just as he was with Jesus as he went to the cross. Uh, the father is always with us. And the more that we can learn to lean on him and to remember his presence, uh, the, the fact of that, even though if we feel lonely, the knowledge that, no, nope, God is here. God is with me. I can always pray to him is a great comfort when we feel alone. And what makes that powerful, or at least allows it to have an impact on me as it did in the past, is that the fact that Jesus, who he faced that loneliness worse than what we ever, I could have ever faced when everyone actually deserted him, right? But what makes it powerful is the fact that he was raised from the dead. And here's a man that faced all of this. The son of God proved that he was the son of God when he was raised from the dead. And here's somebody then I need to know more about. And early on in my life, I didn't know that much about him. But knowing that fact is where then strength was coming to me from the Lord. Reading what he experienced and knowing the fact that he was raised from the dead. Amen. Here's a, another text that's uh, coming in a comment. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one. Uh, for cooperating together in their work and for good productivity, for encouraging one another to keep going, to share resources, for security. So let's think for a minute about like the importance of assembling with saints. Um, th there are sometimes where you instances where you have an isolated saint who can't be with others. The Ethiopian eunuch, the gospel is not spread down to Ethiopia. He's just become a disciple, but he's on the way to Ethiopia. There are going to be no saints down there for him to assemble with. Uh, John gets exiled to Patmos. Perhaps there were other disciples exiled with him, or they could go with him. Perhaps not. Uh, we may find ourselves separated from other brethren, um, but in a spiritual family, which is a different thing than our physical family. But we, Mark 10 has already been mentioned Jesus knew that some people are going to, for the gospel's sake, lose relationships with their physical family. He said, but you're going to gain it in the kingdom. You'll gain brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, etc." 
And listen to this passage from Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another. Why is that so important? So you can be alone. You can be Elijah and not know those other 7,000. You can be Noah, and it's just your family, you and your family on the boat. Uh, but you'll see sometimes people that don't want to associate with other Christians, and they say, well, I'll just go out in the woods, and I'll be okay by myself. There are challenges to being alone uh, and not having brothers and sisters around to help you. Why is this? Why is this so important about assembling together? There's more than one answer to that. Well, without getting to why it's important yet, we'll, we'll get there. But it just as you as you're putting that out there, it occurs to me. You think of of the Apostle Paul in his letters. How often he will use the phrase at the beginning of the letter, uh, "I make mention of you in my prayers always." Yeah. Or at the end of a letter, he'll say, salute so-and-so, salute so-and-so. He knows the people in these churches. He obviously cared a great deal for all these brethren. And you think back to when he, he first came to, to, when he came to Jerusalem in Acts the ninth chapter, um, after he'd become a Christian and he had made a reputation for himself persecuting Christians. You know, he, he's kind of become uh, a man without a country, at least on the surface, because here he was this upcoming Jew persecuting the believing Jews. Well, the believing Jews certainly don't identify with him. And then he becomes a Christian. So now all those with whom he had standing as a persecutor of the Christians, now they're against him. Uh, So he's in a sense alone. And he comes to Jerusalem and Luke says in verse 26, when he was come to Jerusalem, the old, the American standard says he assayed to join himself to the disciples, or he tried to, he attempted to. And they were reluctant to receive him, not believing that he was a disciple. They thought maybe he's still a persecutor of the disciples. That would be enough to put some people off. Well, if you're going to treat me that way, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I was going to try to be your friend, and you don't want, you want to believe the worst about me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. But this was important to him, and Barnabas spoke up for him and vouched for him. And then it says, he was with them, going in and going out at Jerusalem, an expression, an idiom that just means conducting his affairs with the other saints. Uh, I think it's striking how important it was to Paul to be a part of this, this group of Christians there in Jerusalem, and we can talk about why. And let me throw this out there. Um, there's going to be tragedies and stuff that leave us lonely and very alone and heartbroken and stuff. Sometimes there's other situations where loneliness is self-imposed. Yeah. Have you ever heard this type of personality? Well, I went to church last Sunday and none of the brethren shook my hand. <laughs> yeah. nobody, nobody talked to me and nobody shook my hand. Yeah. Oh. Uh, what what might be pointed out there? Might be pointed out is because of the awful sermon I preached. <laughs> 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 no, no. Everybody's I, in a hurry to get out. I didn't shake anybody else's hand. If, no, yeah. if there was no handshaking going on, you know, it's it's a two-sided thing here. Yes. If I had reached out and said, hello, I'm so-and-so, I can almost guarantee you they'd have reached out a hand back to you and said, oh, well, good to meet you. I'm so-and-so. So, But <laughs> if I walk out and I say, Drew didn't shake my hand, Stephen didn't shake my hand, Jeff didn't shake my hand, it's not that I reached out and you refused it. 
I'm not reaching out to anybody, but then I'm complaining that nobody's reaching out to me. And yeah. you, you can have a self-imposed uh, kind of self, there's real tragedy, there's real sorrow, and there's real loneliness, and there's real challenges. But sometimes people have a self-imposed uh, thing because they're just looking inward and not looking outward. But as to, but as to the, the value, to the importance of it, um, you think of, First Corinthians 14, it talks about the assemblies and all things being done to edifying. Edifying is building up. We build one yeah. another up. And then there's Hebrews 11. Have we already quoted this today? Hebrews 11, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and having our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day drawing near. In that context, the, the emphasis upon coming together is upon building one another up. The whole book of Hebrews is about persisting and persevering and not turning back and, and growing, and, and we need to help one another to do that, and God has provided for that in the context of the local congregation. Stephen. One of my favorite examples that we can use from the book of Hebrews to not feel alone is Hebrews 11. Uh, this picture of all the saints who have lived before us, uh, of those who've gone through a variety of different challenges and situations. And to think about the, the call of Hebrews 11, it really ends in chapter 12, where he says, let's consider Jesus. We have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. We are not alone in our battles, uh, in, our, in, in our battles of faith, uh, to hold fast to God, to, to not let go of the promises. Uh, I'm sure there were times where Abraham felt alone in this foreign land, or there were times where Moses felt alone, rejected by his own people, you know, going back out and then having to intercede for the people even after he comes back. The point is this, God has preserved in scripture for us a host of different examples of people who have been through things like we go through. And the more that we can see the faith of those people and maybe even pick one person in particular, if you're, if you're going through a lot of temptation and you're a young person and you're struggling maybe with sexual temptation, you look at Joseph, you talk about someone who was alone in Egypt and then Potiphar's wife, you know, uh, tempting him and he stands firm in that situation. He resists that temptation. He understands what it's like to go through that. Uh, or, or maybe you're going through a time of, of grief and loss, and, and you, you look at Job, <clears throat> and you think about what Job went through and did not let go of his faith in the Lord. Or, or you, you, maybe you've just disappointed yourself, and you have fallen into sin, you've rejected the Lord, and then you think about Peter and what Peter went through, denying, cursing, and swearing that he never knew Jesus, and yet he comes back from that. Uh, the more that we can draw close to these people in Scripture, uh, we feel less alone. We see that what we've gone, what we're going through is not unique uh, in, in the bigger scheme of things. Um, but the Lord has provided us examples to help us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Thoughts, comments? 
Well, we're right out of time here. I didn't mean to throw cold water on things. (laughs) (laughs) Also to say this, as we think about loneliness, it's so important that we learn in moments of loneliness to lean on the Lord. Uh, There are going to come times in all of our lives, and and namely at the end of our life, uh, when we face death, unless the Lord comes back first, death is something that every person has to face by themselves, by themselves. And the Lord is still with us in that moment. Uh, There's a a hymn, or go ahead. Oh, go ahead. There's a hymn uh, that says, uh, and soon in solemn oneness, the river must be passed. And talking about the river of death. Uh, but you will never leave me. And though the raves, waves roll high, I know you will be near me and whisper, it is I. Very good. Very good. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for uh, your input, comments. Thank you for the, uh, from the audience for your questions comments and thoughts uh, we want to invite you to always ask questions we want to talk about things that are on your mind relating to the bible uh, go to www.biblequest.tv fill out the form anytime during the week you can fill out the form for questions there and we'll get them um, or you can during the live program text them in a number of different ways if you're listening from a, the recorded podcast we invite you to go to the website as well, BibleQuest.tv, and fill in uh, any questions or comments you'd like to have the panelists discuss. Gentlemen, any other thoughts before we close it down? Thank you. Thank you.